the Department of Labor is supposed to provide an easy path to compensation for workers who became ill because of their radiation exposure during work building nuclear weapons. But when you hear someone who is trying to get that compensation for these ill workers, and she tells you, I've heard many of the people that are on my email distribution list or on the Facebook pages, many many times quote that they think that Department of Labor's motto is "delay, deny, and I hope you die." Well, when you hear something like that. You've got to realize that we are all in the exact same seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. From just one mile away, so I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, Paul Gunter, director of Beyond Nuclear, helps us understand the impact of last week's decision to end construction of two new nuclear reactors in South Carolina. The good news is that the new nukes won't be built, but the bad news is a whole lot of everything else. Then we talk with Terry Berry of ANWAG, the Alliance of Nuclear Workers Advocacy Groups, on the latest whistleblower revelation of intentional delays by the Department of Labor in providing life-preserving treatments to the government's nuclear weapons workers. Also, we'll be discussing what her group is doing to help, and some reflections on the 72nd anniversary. Of the United States dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that will be in today's final thought. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness: the duck and cover report on the latest problems with our aging fleet of U.S. nuclear reactors, news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information. That even Dan Rather had on his News and Guts Facebook site in the entire week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August eight, twenty seventeen, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S. at the Hanford Reservation in Washington State, the most contaminated place in the Western Hemisphere. On June 8th, approximately 350 Hanford workers were ordered to take cover after alarms designed to detect elevated levels of airborne radioactive contamination went off. It was quickly determined that radioactive particles had been swept out of a containment zone at the plutonium finishing plant demolition site. At the time, Hanford officials called the safety measure precautionary. 
Officials from the U.S. Department of Energy, which owns Hanford, and the contractor in charge of the demolition, CH2M Hill, downplayed the seriousness of the event with statements including, it appears workers were not at risk, and there was no evidence radioactive particles had been inhaled. But much as Nuclear Hot Seat stated at the time, these official statements underestimated and misrepresented the seriousness of the event. King 5 TV in Seattle's investigators, including the esteemed reporter Susanna Frame, have discovered those statements are incorrect. An internal CH2M Hill email sent to their employees on July 21st states that a, quote, small number of employees showed positive results for internal exposures by radioactive plutonium. But sources have revealed that the small number of employees is 12 out of 65, or 20 percent, and still outstanding are 236 tests. Curiously, the one test for rapid diagnosis of plutonium contamination is a nasal smear test, and that was not administered to anyone. While CH2M Hill's July 21st email tried to downplay the seriousness of the exposure as less than a fraction of a standard chest x-ray, an x-ray lasts only a fraction of a second and all the radiation exits the body. This is about internal contamination. And plutonium, which is the most dangerous radioactive substance on the face of the planet, emits alpha radiation, which is the most destructive type to inhale or ingest. They destroy DNA and cause cancer, according to Dr. Marco Kaltofen of the Nuclear Science and Engineering Program, Department of Physics, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. It is not known why the workers on June 8th were not wearing full respiratory protective gear. In South Carolina, with the decision to shut down a two-reactor project at the VC Summer Nuclear Station, bipartisan leadership of the state Senate are calling for a special session of the legislature to deal with the situation. Lawmakers are considering making changes to the Public Service Commission and laws that allowed South Carolina Electric and Gas to raise rates before the project was complete. The company has raised rates on customers nine times since the project was announced, and the builders are planning to have a reimbursement plan in place so that they will be compensated over the next 60 years for their incompetence. We'll have more on the VC summer shutdown during our interview with Paul Gunter. In a related story, the Vogel Electric Generating Plant in Waynesboro, Georgia, has seen its cost doubled since it was first proposed in 2008. Its current estimate for completion is $25 billion, and that's just the current estimate. Southern said it would make a recommendation to Georgia regulators later this month about whether it would proceed with the project or not. We vote not. A Labor Department whistleblower has claimed that government officials are purposefully thwarting ill workers or their widows' claims for compensation required by law. As a result, the Alliance of Nuclear Workers Advocacy Groups, or ANWAG, sent a letter to several members of Congress on Tuesday, July 25, calling on them to investigate the whistleblower's complaints. According to ANWAG Representative Terry Berry, 
While many congressional leaders strongly support the sick nuclear workers, there has been no congressional oversight of the compensation program in nearly 10 years, with the last hearing on the issue occurring in the Senate in 2007. And we will be hearing from Terry Berry on this issue during the second of our two featured interviews. Let's hear what's gone wrong at the nuclear reactors with this week's DAC <laughs> and cover report. On July 28th, the Diablo Canyon facility in Northern California had an alert, which is number two on the four-step NRC scale to kiss your posterior goodbye. There were low oxygen levels inside containment, and it took seven hours to get the problem resolved. According to Julie Wirt, a researcher and member of Radiation Watch, the EPA's RADnet monitor was off during this event. She also says that the monitor is off most of the time. <coughs> Watts Bar in Tennessee had a manual reactor trip and was in hot standby on July 25th. <coughs> Brunswick in North Carolina had a scram on August 4th. A scram meaning, I'm getting out of here as it was considered an event or condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of a safety function needed to control the release of radioactive material. <coughs> and then there's two for Limerick in Pennsylvania, one for St. Lucie in Florida, you got some splaining to do, Beaver Valley in Pennsylvania, and Dwayne Arnold in Iowa. Still think you're safe? <coughs> and now... Nuclear hot seat... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. When is a nuclear bomb not a nuclear bomb? When it's a mini-nuke. And that's what the U.S. military sees as the 21st century path to deterrence. The U.S. Air Force is investigating more options for variable yield bombs. Think of it as dial a nuke. Nukes that can be dialed down to blow up an area as small as a neighborhood. They don't bother to define how large that neighborhood is. Or they can be dialed up for a much larger punch. According to this article in cnd.defense1.com, the Air Force currently has gravity bombs that either have or can be set to low yields, less than 20 kilotons. Point of fact, Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. But hey, what's 20 kilotons in this megaton age? They're saying that such a bomb dropped in the center of Washington, D.C. wouldn't even directly affect Georgetown or Foggy Bottom. Nothing about radiation, fireball, direction of wind to carry the radioactive debris. Nah, it's just a mini-bomb. Air Force General Paul Selva, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said Thursday at a Mitchell Institute event in downtown Washington, the future of nuclear deterrence lies, at least in part, in smaller nuclear weapons that the United States might actually use. They probably wouldn't even trigger mutually assured deterrence, or MAD as it's known, and yes, it is MAD as in insane. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California agrees and said, I have no doubt the proposal to research low-yield nuclear weapons is just the first step to actually building them. There's no such thing as a limited nuclear war, 
And for the Pentagon's advisory board to even suggest such a thing is deeply troubling. Ya think? And that's why the Pentagon advisory board is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Over to Japan, where the big news is a new peer-reviewed article in the scientific journal Science of the Total Environment. The title? Radioactively hot particles detected in dusts and soils from northern Japan. Co-authored by Dr. Marco Kaltofen of the Worcester Polytechnic Institute and Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, the article details the analysis of radioactively hot particles collected in Japan following the Fukushima Daiichi meltdowns. Based on 415 samples of radioactive dust from Japan, the United States, and Canada, the study identified a statistically meaningful number of samples that were consistently more radioactive than current radiation models anticipated. If ingested, these more radioactive particles increase the risk of suffering a future health problem. According to Gunderson, we measured things like house dusts, air filters, and even car floor mats. Collecting such accurate data shows the importance of citizen science, crowdsourcing, and the necessity of open, public-domain data for accurate scientific analysis. Dr. Kaltofen said, We found that some people were breathing or ingesting enough radioactive dust to have a real increase in their risk of suffering a future health problem. This was especially true of children and younger people who inhale or ingest proportionately more dust than adults. To evaluate the biological effect of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, relative differences in the growth of wild Japanese monkeys were measured before and after the disaster in 2011 in Fukushima City, which is approximately 70 kilometers or 43 miles from the nuclear power plant. Comparing the relative growth of 31 fetuses conceived prior to the disaster and 31 fetuses conceived after the disaster showed that body weight, growth rate, and proportional head size were significantly lower in fetuses conceived after the disaster. No significant difference was observed in nutritional indicators for the fetuses' mothers. And Japanese officials and engineers tasked with preventing the release of radioactive material during debris removal from the Fukushima nuclear site in Japan are visiting Mississippi State University to learn about the university's expertise in evaluating components of radioactive containment systems. It's only been six years. Maybe that's why Arnie and Marco were able to find so much radioactive dust to test. In Taiwan, that country's Atomic Energy Council has established the first food testing lab for Japanese food imports, which can test up to 1,700 samples per month and would run tests on food samples sent by customs offices in northern Taiwan. No, a regular radiation monitor will not do it when it comes to testing food. Last year, the Ministry of Health and Welfare's plan to lift a ban on food imports from Japan's Gunma, Tochigi, Ibaraki, and Chiba prefectures led to a public outcry amid fears that food from these areas were affected by the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster in March of 2011. The United States, on the other hand, 
does not and never has tested for radiation in food or any other substances from Japan. Did you know that Cuba has treated over 26,000 Chernobyl nuclear disaster victims? The program ran from 1990 to 1995, and 84% of the total number of patients treated were children from Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. And the medical program was free of charge. In the wake of the UN passing a ban on nuclear weapons, a group of leading doctors and healthcare professionals in Britain have called on that country to work towards multilateral nuclear disarmament. Oil rich Kuwait is getting out of nuclear investment, selling shares in the beleaguered French Arriva Group. And in Scotland, wind energy powered all of their households for six months. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, for those of you who are new to Nuclear Hot Seat, welcome aboard. Each week, the nuclear industry and those who oppose it provide quite a ride. And if you couldn't tell any of it was happening, if all you follow is mainstream media, I'm not surprised. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat exists to give a caring, compassionate, and concerned person like you. A regular weekly dose of nuclear news you can count on to be honest. We also include a message asking listeners to help us out with the donation so that we can keep running and growing in our outreach. A donation of any size is deeply appreciated and we do need it to pay our expenses. So just go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. And if you're looking for a simple, inexpensive way to support the show on a monthly basis, we now have a big green donate button, which allows you to set up a recurring donation of $5 a month. That's the price of a cup of coffee with a decent tip to the barista. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee this month and every month. And know that whatever you can do to help us meet our expenses and keep the show alive and growing. You have my gratitude. This week, we're talking with experts, genuine experts, on two of the stories that have been in the nuclear news in the past week. First up, Paul Gunter. He is Beyond Nuclear's director of the Reactor Oversight Project. Paul specializes in reactor hazards and security of operating reactors, prevention of new reactor construction, regulatory oversight. Climate change, the nuclear power nuclear weapons connection, organizing and movement building, radiation impacts on health, and wildlife impacts. So, when the VC summer construction in South Carolina ground to a screeching halt last week, I knew who I wanted to help explain to you some of the implications of this dramatic shift in the expectations of the nuclear industry. Paul Gunter. Thanks for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much, Libby. The South Carolina utility Scanna and Santee Cooper have decided to end construction of the two new VC summer nuclear reactors in Fairfield County, South Carolina. How big a win is this for the people who oppose nuclear? And are you perhaps dancing the happy dance over this? Of course, it is a celebration that we've stopped pouring money down this barrel without a bottom. Nuclear power is the most expensive way 
conceivable to boil water to generate electricity. And certainly the summer nuclear power stations, Units 2 and 3 under construction there in Jenkinsville, South Carolina, are no exception. It comes as no surprise, however, you know, the inability of this industry to control cost and to provide any kind of reliable estimate for how long it will take to complete these things, given this is such a complex technology. This has been identified for those of us who've been with this movement for a while. You know, there was a Forbes magazine back in 1985 featured a um, cover story called Nuclear Follies in which they identified nuclear power development as, quote, the largest managerial disaster in U.S. business history where no one but the blind or the biased could think that the money was well spent. That could not apply more aptly to the events that we've just seen now unfold where these South Carolina utilities have essentially just thrown in the towel on the uh, exorbitant and continuously skyrocketing cost of nuclear power construction. It's definitely one of the cliches of the industry, which was cited in one of the press releases that came from SCENG, the utility, that the reason for the closure is, quote, higher than expected costs and a longer timetable to complete the work. And as I said, that's a cliche in nuclear circles because there's not a single project that has ever come in on time and on budget. And they were warned by Standard & Poor's Fitch Financial Services and Moody's back in the mid 2000, like 2005, we were seeing these credit rating reports from the major credit companies and financial services in the United States saying that if you ventured into building nuclear power stations, it was so risky because of this failure to accurately predict how much it's going to cost or how long it's going to take to complete, that these financial services would downrate your credit rating. And this is exactly what's been happening. And it's precisely why all of these nuclear power plant owners, you know, they were never able to get any kind of financing from Wall Street, from professional investors, because nobody was going to put any money on this. And in fact, even the utilities themselves were unwilling to risk any of their finances. And so the construction has always been on the back of the ratepayer and the taxpayer, either through, uh, as in the case of the Vogel nuclear power stations under construction in uh, Georgia, you know, identical units to the summer two and three. These are the AP 1000. You know, they're still using ratepayer and taxpayer money through federal loan guarantees from the Department of Energy to continue that construction. And the burden has been on the ratepayer in, in South Carolina to finance construction. And what's happened is they've simply run out of money. The financing in South Carolina seems like a Ponzi scheme built on the back of the ratepayers. 
they have been paying 18% of their monthly bill for project financing, meaning the future generation of energy. That averages out to $27 a month per ratepayer household, which in an average household is an enormous amount of money. More than $1.4 billion has been raised in this way towards building the nuclear reactors, and now that construction will not take place. What recourse, if any, might South Carolina ratepayers have to, first of all, immediately end this surcharge and then recover the monies that have already been paid out? I think that that's part of the restitution that has yet to be decided in South Carolina. In fact, South Carolina Electric and Gas, they're now formulating what they're calling an abandonment recovery program, where they will go before the uh, state regulators and seek to recover costs, you know, make money on the sunk costs from ratepayers. So it's sort of putting ratepayers in double jeopardy. We're understanding that there are discussions underway through SCENG to, in fact, seek recovery costs over the next 60 years for this project and its abandonment. So we're a long way off from justice, given that the ratepayers in South Carolina have been subject to robber barons that have essentially, it's not just the households, but it's commercial facilities, it's industrial costs that have been soaked to build essentially an effort at building an empire through the most expensive way to generate electricity. There will be hearings And principally, we're seeing players like Friends of the Earth and Sierra Club there in South Carolina that will be a part of these recovery proceedings and hopefully successfully challenge them so that what should be irate payers in South Carolina will at least see some relief. Just today, Friday, August 4th, Two of the top leaders in the South Carolina Senate have called for a special session of the legislature to deal with the situation caused by the decision to shut down the reactor project. What options might be open to them to force SCANA and SCENG to take financial responsibility for this new nuclear failure as opposed to fobbing it off on the ratepayers for the next 60 years? Well, I think that clearly the big question is is determining that, in fact, this has always been an imprudent investment. And again, going back to the fact that Standard & Poor's and all the other financial services had issued white papers, credit rating warnings to all these companies that were venturing into applications for new construction and they had been warned that venturing into this financial quagmire, as, as we've known for decades now, would jeopardize their credit rating. So th- these investments, these projects, have always been identified as imprudent. And so what happened here was that the ratepayers were essentially taken advantage of in an imprudent venture, And so they should not be penalized. In fact, they should find restitution from these companies. 
Let's roll this back a little bit to how this dissolution of the project happened because the utilities involved are blaming the bankruptcy of Westinghouse for starting the house of cards, the dominoes, whatever image you want to create of this, of the collapse of the ability to move forward. How important was the Westinghouse bankruptcy and how did that impact the process? You know, this has been more akin to a circular firing squad. I don't think that SC and E&G can lay the blame on Westinghouse when, in fact, they bought into the AP-1000 design when they knew that there were problems with this design. And Westinghouse is the company that designed this reactor, correct? Westinghouse Electric is the largest designer and manufacturer of nuclear power plants in the world. And the fact that these cost overruns, these mismanagement problems, the design problems, these all contributed to Westinghouse's bankruptcy itself. You know, the cost overruns, originally summer two and three project The cost was projected at somewhere like $9 billion for the completion of these two nuclear power stations. Long about October 2015, however, the cost overruns had mounted to such a degree that Toshiba, which is the parent company of Westinghouse Electric and Westinghouse, they essentially had established a fixed contract of by then $14 billion dollars. So they were already compensating for the cost overruns. And when they went bankrupt, that fixed contract went out the window. And essentially, that's where the whole domino started to fall. So they were guaranteed up to $14 billion for the project. And it turns out with the cost overruns, that would not be enough. Is that accurate? That's accurate. And that, in fact, given their just halfway through the project and six years approximately and that is a lowball number behind completion you know we're looking at a potential cost of upwards of 25 to 29 billion dollars for the completion again this is simply not a sustainable formula it's akin to like thinking about burning antiques in your wood stove It simply is not sustainable, and it's never been sustainable. What position is Beyond Nuclear going to be taking as this moves forward? Will you be joining with Friends of the Earth and the Sierra Club in making statements or perhaps providing witness as hearings go forward? Well, certainly we're advocating for ratepayers to find restitution from this colossal boondoggle. I think that the uh, the hearings will be in good hands with Friends of the Earth and Sierra Club there in the state, given they have the standing. But, you know, again, it's going to be a struggle because we are concerned that the regulatory agencies from the state all the way to the federal levels are captured by this industry. This is an industry that has been able to re-image itself time and time and time again. And I'm sure that they are not done yet in terms of 
again trying to win the cost of abandonment of these two reactor projects, they will try to soak the ratepayers still more for this. So clearly there's a fight now for justice for ratepayers in South Carolina. Again, this is going to be a fight that will extend into Georgia as well, given that Southern Company and Georgia Power are essentially now under the weight of the collapse there in South Carolina. And these are the two companies that are involved in the construction of the Vogel nuclear reactors, correct? Yes, Vogel units three and four. And we're seeing, again, the same formula for the inability to accurately control the cost of completion or predict the time to completion. These are you know, essentially the same formulas that led to the collapse of the nuclear industry and new builds back in the 1980s. And the fact that what was framed as a nuclear renaissance when they started this again in 2005 is really, again, demonstrated now to be a relapse to the same problems that forced 100 units into closure, construction projects that were proposed or licensed that had to be abandoned because, again, nuclear power cannot be controlled in its cost or its time to completion and ultimately what's ever done with the nuclear waste. Well, that's a whole other discussion that I have regularly with Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. Anything you would like to add at this point that you feel we haven't covered? There is one other revelation in the news, and that is that South Carolina Electric and Gas had gone to the Trump administration to ask for federal help in bailing out the um, summer two and three project. And in going all the way up to the um, head of the Department of Energy through Secretary Perry, asking again for a bailout, but at least no word yet has come that that is going to happen. We're all familiar with President Trump in his June 2017 announcement called Unleashing American Energy, where he was boasting about how he would back nuclear power development in the United States. But even even now, I think that they're realizing that that dog doesn't hunt. And here's hoping that it never does. Paul Gunter, thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us at Nuclear Hot Seat, and we look forward to our future conversations with you as well. Thank you again. Paul Gunter. You can connect to Paul and to an amazing website filled with information at beyondnuclear.org. Next up, Terry Berry. She is a worker advocate with Cold War Patriots, a group with the slogan, Honoring Nuclear and Uranium Workers Who Proudly Served Our Country. Terry is the Rocky Flats Special Exposure Cohort co-petitioner, and she works as part of the Alliance of Nuclear Workers Advocacy Groups, or ANWAR, on the Energy Employees Claimant Assistance Projects. What she does is help radiation-exposed workers get compensation under a little-known government program. And this government program actually admits 
that exposure to radiation is implicated in at least 22 named cancers. Here she is responding to last week's news from a whistleblower about what's going on at the Department of Labor. Terry Berry, so good to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's a pleasure. I appreciate your interest and look forward to your continued coverage on All Matters Nuclear. First of all, explain what the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program Act is and what it's supposed to do and who it is supposed to help. It's a federal compensation program to adequately compensate uh, workers who worked at the Department of Energy um, nuclear weapons sites who became ill or died due to toxic exposures and or radiation. Part B is a lump sum, what we call an apology program. If you contracted cancers, chronic beryllium disease, or chronic silicosis. Part E compensates for those diseases in addition to others, like Parkinson's disease. But it's a difficult program to get through because there are certain criteria you have to meet, which is very difficult to get into a a two-minute explanation. On paper, it's a great compensation program. It, It pays for wage loss and impairment. Survivors are eligible. It's just tough to meet the criteria sometimes. Let's talk about that a little bit, because when Congress passed the law creating the compensation program in 2000, it was a bipartisan group of lawmakers, and they promised these nuclear workers a claimant-friendly path to compensating them or their families for these illnesses related to the country's nuclear buildup and the resulting exposure to toxins at bomb-making facilities. How well has the government been fulfilling the program's promises? In my opinion, they have failed drastically. Yes, there are billions of dollars actually have been paid out in compensation, but it's just so difficult. I know of claims that have been in the system since its inception in 2001 who still haven't been compensated or have been compensated only for a limited amount of money, you know, for impairment or wage loss. It could be done so much easier The advisory board, the Department of Labor advisory board, is working on streamlining the process. They made several recommendations that would make it easier for Department of Labor to presume this disease resulted from the workplace exposures. For instance, they made recommendations on accepting COPD, hearing loss, and quite a few others. And we're waiting for Department of Labor to accept it those presumptions to streamline the claims process. Recently, a whistleblower has come forth to say that Department of Labor officials have intentionally delayed or denied payments to claimants under this program in the hopes that they'll die before they get compensated. Yes, I'm not surprised by that at all. I'm actually in possession of a Department of Labor solicitor's emails where he told the district manager how to get around paying this one claimant. The claims examiner was going to pay, but by the time it got up to the national office and the solicitor, the ultimate result was the claim was denied. So I I totally believe the whistleblower. What 
has been done or can be done by Congress to help fix this program and get the Department of Labor to actually do its job in this matter? Well, they're off to a good start. ANWI, the Alliance of Nuclear Worker Advocacy Groups, um, after this report came out with a whistleblower, wrote a letter to Congress to several committees who have responsibility over this program, asking them for hearings. Earlier this week, we understand that the House Committee on Education and Workforce is investigating, and they're working in conjunction with the Department of Labor's Inspector General. And ANWAG also sent um, the Inspector General a letter detailing just one aspect of the problems. So we're, we're encouraged that they're working. And we do appreciate the bipartisan nature of this program. And we're looking forward to Congress to step in and, and fix it the way they intended it to be. The Committee on Education and the Workforce recently sent letters to the Government Accountability Office. What were in those letters and what's your opinion of them? The committee asked for two separate investigations into the program. One was asking the committee to review the Department of Labor's Advisory Board's review of the site exposure matrix and to determine what, if any, action was taken by the board and what Department of Labor's response was. Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, this board has done a fantastic job diving into the issue and has made several recommendations on the SEM. So I think on this letter, GAO will report that and also report that whether Department of Labor, by the time their report comes out, has accepted any of those recommendations. The second letter is concerns about policies have been changed, you know, some for the good, some presumptions have been accepted, but there's one policy that was changed, and that was treating survivor claims differently. And the committee wants to know if Department of Labor reopened previously denied claims. And that's something we don't know, and I'm looking forward to the GAO's report because these workers and their survivors, you know, they don't keep up with the program like I do. So it's important for them that there is a policy change to review those previously denied claims and reopen them. So I'm hoping that um, the GAO will determine that if DOL is not currently doing that, then they make the recommendation that it's automatically processed that way. It sounds like this program, while intending to alleviate the stress and the pain and the difficulties of the workers, has sometimes increased their hardship in making them wait longer. And indeed, one of your colleagues mentioned an incident where he was told directly by an attorney from the Department of Labor that they were delaying a claim as long as possible in the hope that the person would die. Is this common? Is this true? Or is this just an apocryphal story? It wouldn't surprise me. I've heard many of the people that are on my email distribution list or on the Facebook pages many, many times quote that they think that Department of Labor's motto is delay, deny, and I hope you die. So this has been going around for years because the delaying in, in a way, that has improved, but the reasons for denying a claim sometimes is so ludicrous, 
and you have to go back through the process and you have that you know have the recommended decision the final decision and the request for reconsideration and a claim can take over a year to go through just these procedures it doesn't surprise me that somebody was told that and of course this is someone who is ill already to be making the claim Yes. And the stress and the length of time can definitely work to erode their health even further and create more hardship for them. Yes, and stress. Stress is a killer. And if the sick worker is handling the claim by himself, it it is going to be detrimental to his health, guaranteed. What kind of support is provided by your organization and the others who are working on these claims? Well, we're there for moral support. Many ANWAG members are also authorized representatives, so they do actually represent the claimants themselves before Department of Labor. Personally, I'm the moral support, and I either find out information for them or suggest where they could get additional help. My main purpose, mine, is to monitor the program. I, I check Department of Labor every day, sometimes even twice a day, and share that information with everybody so everyone knows what's going on. And I also work with the press, and I also keep Congress, you know, certain staffers from Congress informed of what the problems are, or the good things. Always good to celebrate the good things and reinforce those. What other areas of the program are experiencing problems or delays? The one biggest gripe I have is the Freedom of Information Act request. Sometimes we need this not just to find out the dirt on the program, but we need this to help support claims. For instance, I have a FOIA request for a Department of Energy document that Department of Labor has, and I requested that, oh, months ago, and I still haven't gotten it, and I need that for the Rocky Flats petition process. And that is, like, just really, really bothers me. I understand that there's a problem. We just started investigating this with delays in getting medical procedures, home health care, medically durable equipment approved in a timely manner. I understand that it has really slowed down. And this this is for people who have already been covered and sometimes who already have this equipment, but like every six months you need to go through this process for reauthorization, and it's slowed down. And we just started investigating this. There's a poll up on www.ecap.org that we're asking people to respond to so we can see the depth of the problem. What concerns do you want the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat to know about that perhaps they can take action on, and what might that action consist of? I think this issue with the whistleblower coming forward, bravely coming forward, is important. We were unaware of this whistleblower. We had no idea he existed. And we mutually confirm each other's issues without knowing about it. For the listeners, I would like them to contact their uh, legislators and say, hey, especially the House Committee on Education and Workforce, and say, yes, this needs to be investigated thoroughly and completely. Hearings, if necessary, that's what I would like. And we will, of course, include any links up for further information on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. Great, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? If you know of a worker who has become ill 
from working at the Department of Energy bomb factory. Please have them reach out to me or Cold War Patriots, and we can help assist you with the claims process. There's a lot of people who still don't know about this program, and we're trying to make sure that everybody who deserves compensation gets compensation. Terry Berry of the Alliance of Nuclear Workers Advocacy Groups and Cold War Patriots. If you believe you are dealing with negative health impacts from exposure to radiation and other toxins that you got dosed with while working in the U.S. nuclear weapons program, the contact information for Terry Berry and ANWAG will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 320. Activist shout-out! A great watery protest last Sunday afternoon in Canada, where a flotilla of more than 30 watercraft, from kayaks to flat-bottom tour boats, carrying 150 people, assembled offshore of Chalk River Laboratories, floating on the Ottawa River, in order to deliver a message to Canadian nuclear laboratories, a resounding no to the proposed near-surface disposal facility for radioactive nuclear waste. We covered this issue at length three weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat number 316, July 11, 2017, when we interviewed Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. You can get all the details there. Meanwhile, a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listener and supporter Ray Masalis, who almost got lost looking for the dock from which to launch his boat, but finally made it and was one of those 150 people out on the water. Wish we could have been there with you, Ray. And for all the activists in Canada who are participating in this, keep spreading the word. It makes no sense. It's a bad idea. And once people know about it, you'll have the numbers you need to defeat it. Here's today's final thought. Last Sunday... August 6, marked the 72nd anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb by the United States on Hiroshima. And tomorrow, August 9, marks the 72nd anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. As the world seems to be ramping up to consider as rational the use of nuclear weapons, it's most certainly not, I realize that we're considering nukes again because, in truth, Few people know exactly what they are, what they do, and the devastating impact they have on all life. After Japan surrendered, the U.S. quickly clamped down on access to Hiroshima, especially by journalists. Yes, you can call it censorship because that's exactly what it was. They didn't want the truth of what had happened getting out. But one reporter got through their blockades, mostly on a fluke, and we have Wilfred Burchett of Australia to thank for the first and only authentic news story written in the aftermath of the bomb. Burchett's harrowing account in the Daily Express under the title The Atomic Plague should be mandatory reading for all of those who are currently advocating for what they're choosing to call a limited nuclear war, as though nuclear bombs and their radioactive aftermath can ever be limited in their ultimate impact. But one picture is worth a thousand words, 
there have been relatively few images of the aftermath that were taken where, as Bruchette so poignantly wrote, Hiroshima used to be. Most pictures are of rubble and distant shots of the destroyed city, with the skeletal dome of the Hiroshima Commercial Exhibition Hall, now known as the Peace Dome, in the background. That's why a new series of photos from Hiroshima, taken within perhaps the first 24 hours after the blast, before anything could be cleaned up, before anything could be covered up, provide such an intimate, shocking, painful vision of the aftermath of a nuclear blast. The photos came from a camera bought by Scottish RAF pilot Clifford Fern in a second-hand shop 15 miles from Fukushima, and the purchase was made just six months after the bombings. The new owner had the film developed and then hid the pictures away for over 60 years because they were so powerful. Once he passed away, his son made the decision to share them with the public. They're now being exhibited in Scotland, in a place called Scotland's Secret Bunker, and they have been published online. The pictures are raw and real and horrific, showing dead bodies, burned children, a stunned populace reeling from something horrific but they did not yet know what it was. Articles published with these photos hypothesized that the pictured people, as well as the unknown photographer, were all dead because they'd been so close to the blast center and the radiation levels alone would have killed them. That may be why the used camera and its undeveloped film was being sold. The photographer had died. One picture in particular is seared into my heart and mind. In it, a burned and bloodied woman holds her burned and bloodied infant and tries to breastfeed. An attempt at the continuance of life in the middle of all that death. It's a picture that, to me, says, says everything I need to know. Those who advocate for nuclear war, be it so-called limited or all out back to the Stone Age, haven't a clue what they're really talking about. We who are conscious must make the obscene nature of nuclear bombs known. So I suggest that you bone up on this information. I suggest that you read Burchett's story, his warning to the world. Then look at those new pictures of a 72-year-old atrocity. Then go to NukeMap and drop a computer-generated Hiroshima bomb on your neighborhood. Know that if it should happen for real, and you're lucky enough to survive, if we're going to call that lucky, some photographer may capture the scene. And some journalist may avoid the censors long enough to record your truth. More likely, it would all die with you. But rather than wait for any of that to happen, take whatever you're feeling as a result of reading 
and looking at those images and seeing what a bomb would do to your hometown. And then go to don'tbankonthebomb.com and learn how you can use your money to choke off the money that's going to the nuclear war industry. Do it for the mothers. Do it for their infants. Do it for the planet and the future so that we actually have one. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 8, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from King 5 NBC in Seattle and their ace reporter Susanna Frame, WLTX.com, Wall Street Journal, FreeBeacon.com, MiningAwareness.wordpress.com, DeUnRenard.wordpress.com, Nuclear-News.net, MLive.com, ReviewJournal.com, DefenseOne.com, Gizmodo.com, Reuters, Denver.CBSLocal.com, USAToday.com, Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie Gunderson, Truthout, Mainichi.jp, Nature.com, Cielo, Cuba-Solidarity.org.uk, BMJ.com, GlobalCitizen.org, the brain-dead Judas goats who write PR stories for World Nuclear News, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports accessed with the guidance of Erica Gray of the Sierra Club, and a shout-out to the adorable Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers, all of you, for your awareness, your support, and your love of this planet. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. As for Nuclear Hot Seat, theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from around the world, delivered with as much humor as I can possibly squeeze into it, take a moment and send a donation or a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency starts, but we can never come up with a date that it's over because it never ends. So you've just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.